Section 15 of the Black Experience in America, 18th to 20th Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donald Fitzgill, Jr. Black Experience in America, 18th to 20th Century by Various. Excerpt from the Future of the American Negro by Booker T. Washington. In this chapter, I wish to show how, at Tuskegee, we are trying to work out the plan of industrial training and trust. I shall be pardoned the seeming egotism if I preface the sketch with a few words, by way of example, as to the expansion of my own life and how I came to undertake the work at Tuskegee. My earliest recollection is of a small one-room log hut on a slave plantation in Virginia. After the close of the war, while working in the coal mines of West Virginia for the support of my mother, I heard, in some accidental way, of the Hampton Institute. When I learned that it was an institution where a black boy could study, could have a chance to work for his board, and at the same time be taught to work and to realize the dignity of labor, I resolved to go there. Bidding my mother goodbye, I started out one morning to find my way to Hampton, although I was almost penniless and had no definite idea as to where Hampton was. By walking, begging rides, and paying for a portion of the journey on the steam cars, I finally succeeded in reaching the city of Richmond, Virginia. I was without money or friends. I slept on a sidewalk, and by working on a vessel the next day I earned money enough to continue my way to the Institute, where I arrived with a capital of 50 cents. At Hampton, I found the opportunity in the way of buildings, teachers, and industries provided by the generous to get training in the classroom and by practical touch with industrial life to learn thrift, economy, and push. I was surrounded by an atmosphere of business, Christian influence, and spirit of self-help that seemed to have awakened every faculty in me and caused me for the first time to realize what it meant to be a man instead of a piece of property. While there, I resolved, when I had finished the course of training, I would go into the far south, into the black belt of the south, and give my life to providing the same kind of opportunity for self-reliance, self-awakening that I had found provided for me at Hampton. My work began at Tuskegee, Alabama in 1881, in a small shanty church with one teacher and 30 students, without a dollar's worth of property. The spirit of work and of industrial thrift, with aid from the state and generosity from the North, have enabled us to develop an institution which now has about 1,000 students gathered from 23 states and 88 instructors. Counting students, instructors, and their families, we have a resident population upon the school grounds of about 1,200 persons. The institution owns 2,300 acres of land, 700 of which are cultivated by student labor. There are 600 head of livestock, including horses, mules, cows, hogs, and sheep. There are over 40 vehicles that have been made and are now used by the school. Training is given in 26 industries. There is work in wood, in iron, in leather, in tin, 
and all forms of domestic economy are engaged in. Students are taught mechanical and architectural drawing, receive training as agriculturists, dairymen, masons, carpenters, contractors, builders, as machinists, electricians, printers, dressmakers, and milliners, and in other directions. The value of the property is $300,000. There are 42 buildings, counting large and small, all of which, with the exception of four, have been erected by the labor of the students. Since this work started, there has been collected and spent for its founding and support $800,000. The annual expense is now not far from $75,000. In a humble, simple manner, the effort has been to place a great object lesson in the heart of the South for the elevation of the colored people, where there should be, in a high sense, that union of head, heart, and hand, which has been the foundation of the greatness of all races since the world began. What is the object of all this outlay? It must be first borne in mind that we have in the South a peculiar and unprecedented state of things. The cardinal needs among the eight million colored people in the South, most of whom are found to be on the plantations, may be stated as food, clothing, shelter, education, proper habits, and a settlement of race relations. These millions of colored people of the South cannot be reached directly by any missionary agent, but they can be reached by sending out among them strong, selected young men and women with proper training of head, hand, and heart who will live among them and show them how to lift themselves up. The problem that the Tuskegee Institute keeps before itself constantly is how to prepare these leaders. From the outset, in connection with religious and academic training, it has emphasized industrial, or hand, training as a means of finding the way out of present conditions. First, we have found the industrial teaching useful in giving the student a chance to work out a portion of his expenses while in school. Second, the school furnishes labor that has an economic value and at the same time gives the student a chance to acquire knowledge and skill while performing the labor. Most of all, we find the industrial system valuable in teaching economy, thrift, and the dignity of labor, and in giving moral backbone to students. The fact that a student goes into the world conscious of his power to build a house or a wagon or to make a set of harness gives him a certain confidence and moral independence that he would not possess without such training. A more detailed example of our methods at Tuskegee may be of interest. For example, we cultivate by student labor 700 acres of land. The object is not only to cultivate the land in a way to make it pay our boarding department, but at the same time to teach the students, in addition to the practical work, something of the chemistry of the soil, the best methods of drainage, dairying, cultivation of fruit, the care of livestock and tools, and scores of other lessons needed by people whose main dependence is on agriculture. Friends some time ago provided means for the erection of a large new chapel at Tuskegee. Our students made the bricks for this chapel. A large part of the timber was sawed by the students at our sawmill. The plans were drawn by our teacher of architectural and mechanical drawing. The students did the brick masonry, the plastering, the painting, the carpentry work, the tinning, the slating, and made most of the furniture.
Practically, the whole chapel was built and furnished by student labor. Now the school has this building for permanent use, and the students have a knowledge of the trades employed in its construction. While the young men do the kinds of work I have mentioned, young women, to a large extent, make, mend, and laundry the clothing of the young men. They also receive instruction in dairying, horticulture, and other valuable industries. One of the objections sometimes urged against industrial education for the Negro is that it aims merely to teach him to work on the same plan that he worked on when in slavery. This is far from being the object at Tuskegee. At the head of each of the 26 industrial divisions, we have an intelligent and competent instructor, just as we have in our history classes, so that the student is taught not only practical brick masonry, for example, but also the underlying principles of that industry, the mathematics and the mechanical and architectural drawing, or he is taught how to become master of the forces of nature, so that, instead of cultivating corn in the old way, he can use a corn cultivator that lays off the furrows, drops the corn into them, and covers it. And in this way, he can do more work than three men by the old process of corn planting, while at the same time, much of the toil is eliminated and labor is dignified. In a word, the constant aim is to show the student how to put brains into every process of labor, how to bring his knowledge of mathematics and sciences and farming, carpentry, foraging, foundry work, how to dispense as soon as possible with the old form of antebellum labor. In the erection of the chapel referred to, instead of letting the money which was given to us go into outside hands, we made it accomplish three objects. First, it provided the chapel. Second, it gave the students a chance to get a practical knowledge of the trades connected with the building. And third, it enabled them to earn something toward the payment of their board while receiving academic and industrial training. Having been fortified at Tuskegee by education of mind, skill of hand, Christian character, ideas of thrift, economy, and push, and a spirit of independence, the student is sent out to become a center of influence and light in showing the masses of our people in the black belt of the South how to lift themselves up. Can this be done? I give but one or two examples. Ten years ago, a young colored man came to the institute from one of the large plantation districts. He studied in the classroom a portion of the time and received practical and theoretical training on the farm the remainder of the time. Having finished his course at Tuskegee, he returned to his plantation home, which was in a county where the colored people outnumbered the whites six to one, as is true in many of the counties in the Black Belt of the South. He found the Negroes in debt. Ever since the war, they had been mortgaging their crops for the food on which to live while the crops were growing. The majority of them were living from hand to mouth on rented land in small one-room log cabins and attempting to pay a rate of interest on their advances that ranged from 15 to 40 percent per annum. The school had been taught in a wreck of a log cabin with no apparatus and had never been in session longer than three months out of 12. He found the people, as many as eight or ten persons of all ages and conditions and of both sexes, huddled together and living in one-room cabins year after year, and with a minister whose only aim was to work upon the emotions. One can imagine something of the moral and religious state of the community. But the remedy? 
In spite of the evil, the Negro got the habit of work from slavery. The rank and file of the race, especially those on the southern plantations, work hard. But the trouble is that what they earn gets away from them in high rents, crop mortgages, whiskey, snuff, cheap jewelry, and the like. The young man just referred to had been trained at Tuskegee, as most of our graduates are, to meet just this condition of things. He took the three months public school as a nucleus for his work. Then he organized the older people into a club or conference that held meetings every week. In these meetings, he taught the people in a plain, simple manner how to save their money, how to farm in a better way, how to sacrifice to live on bread and potatoes, if necessary, till they could get out of debt and begin the buying of lands. Soon a large proportion of the people were in a condition to make contracts for the buying of homes. Land is very cheap in the South, and to live without mortgaging their crops. Not only this, under the guidance and leadership of this teacher, the first year that he was among them, they learned how and built, by contributions in money and labor, a neat, comfortable schoolhouse that replaced the wreck of log cabin formerly used. The following year, the weekly meetings were continued, and two months were added to the original three months of school. The next year, two more months were added. The improvement has gone until these people have every year an eight-month school. I wish my readers could have the chance that I have had of going into this community. I wish they could look into the faces of the people and see them beaming with hope and delight. I wish they could see the two or three room cottages that have taken the place of the usual one room cabin. See the well cultivated farms and the religious life of the people that now mean something more than the name. The teacher has a good cottage and well kept farm that serve as models. In a word, a complete revolution has been wrought in the industrial, educational, and religious life of this whole community by reason of the fact that they have had this leader, this guide, and object lesson to show them how to take the money and effort that had hitherto been scattered to the wind in mortgages and high rents, in whiskey and gewgaws, and how to concentrate it in the direction of their own uplifting. One community on its feet presents an object lesson for the adjoining communities, and soon improvements show themselves in other places. Another student, who received academic and industrial training at Tuskegee, established himself three years ago as a blacksmith and wheelwright in a community, and, in addition to the influence of his successful business enterprise, he is fast making the same kind of changes in the life of the people about him that I have just recounted. It would be easy for me to fill many pages describing the influence of the Tuskegee graduates in every part of the South. We keep it constantly in the minds of our students and graduates that the industrial or material condition of the masses of our people must be improved, as well as the intellectual, before there can be any permanent change in their moral and religious life. We find it a pretty hard thing to make a good Christian of a hungry man. No matter how much our people get happy and shout in church, if they go home at night from church hungry, they are tempted to find something to eat before morning. This is a principle of human nature and is not confined alone to the Negro. The Negro has within him immense power for self-uplifting, but for years it will be necessary to guide him and stimulate his energies.
The recognition of this power led us to organize, five years ago, what is known as the Tuskegee Negro Conference, a gathering that meets every February and is composed of about 800 representatives, colored men and women from all sections of the Black Belt. They come in ox carts, mule carts, buggies on mule back and horseback, on foot, by railroad. Some travel all night in order to be present. The matters considered at the conference are those that the colored people have it in their own power to control, such as the evils of the mortgage system, the one-room cabin buying on credit, the importance of owning a home and putting money in the bank, how to build schoolhouses and prolong the school term and to improve their moral and religious condition. As a single example of the results, one delegate reported that since the conference was started seven years ago, 11 people in this neighborhood had bought homes, 14 had gotten out of debt, and a number had stopped mortgaging their crops. Moreover, a schoolhouse had been built by the people themselves, and the school term had been extended from three to six months. And with a look of triumph, he exclaimed, We done living in the ashes. Besides this Negro conference for the masses of the people, we now have a gathering at the same time known as the Tuskegee Workers Conference, composed of the officers and instructors of the leading colored schools in the South. After listening to the story of the condition and needs from the people themselves, the Workers Conference finds much food for thought and discussion. Let me repeat. From its beginning, this institution has kept in mind the giving of thorough mental and religious training along with such industrial training as would enable the student to appreciate the dignity of labor and become self-supporting and valuable as a producing factor, keeping in mind the occupations open in the South to the average man of the race. This institution has now reached the point where it can begin to judge of the value of its work as seen in its graduates. Some years ago, we noted the fact, for example, that there was quite a movement in many parts of the South to organize and start dairies. Soon after this, we opened a dairy school where a number of young men could receive training in the best and most scientific methods of dairying. At present, we have calls, mainly from Southern white men, for twice as many dairymen as we are able to supply. The reports indicate that our young men are giving the highest satisfaction and are fast changing and improving the dairy product in the communities where they labor. I have used the dairy industry simply as an example. What I have said of this industry is true in a larger or less degree of the others. I cannot but believe, and my daily observation and experience confirm me in it, that as we continue placing men and women of intelligence, religion, modesty, conscience, and skill in every community in the South, who will prove by actual results their value to the community, this will constitute the solution for many of the present political and sociological difficulties. It is with this larger and more comprehensive view of improving present conditions and laying the foundation wisely that the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute is training men and women as teachers and industrial leaders. Over 400 students have finished the course of training at this institution and are now scattered throughout the South doing good work. A recent investigation shows that about 3,000 students who have taken only a partial course are doing commendable work. One young man who was able to remain in school but two years has been teaching in one community for 10 years. 
During this time, he has built a new schoolhouse, extended the school term from three to seven months, and has bought a nice farm upon which he has erected a neat cottage. The example of this young man has inspired many of the colored people in the community to follow his example in some degree, and this is one of many such examples. Wherever our graduates and ex-students go, they teach by precept and example the necessary lesson of thrift, economy, and property getting, and friendship between the races. End of the excerpt of The Future of the American Negro by Booker T. Washington. Recording by Donald Fitzgill, Jr.